Oko Bako Hawaii Keia. This is our Hawaii, the podcast that looks at the legacy of large land ownership in the islands and what it means for community sense of belonging. Today, we're taking a look at a strange chapter in the history of Lanai. Producer Savannah Harriman Pote has been in the weeds on this story for the last couple of weeks. Savannah, I'm excited to hear this. Lay it on me. Okay, before we really get into it, what do you know about Lanai? Not a whole lot. I, I've only ever imagined that it's this dusty, small island that was a pineapple farm at one time. It's always actually kind of been like a mystery to me, but what I do know is that it is privately owned by Larry Ellison, or nearly privately owned. He owns, I think, approximately 98% of the island. Yeah, I mean, that was more or less the understanding I had about Lanai too. Small island, lots of pineapples, owned by Larry Ellison, billionaire and founder of the tech giant Oracle. And that was something I think I always just kind of accepted growing up here. But I realized that I don't actually know how that happened. Like, I don't know how Lanai became privately owned in the first place. Yeah, me neither. There's probably a lot of people that don't know. So that is what I tried to figure out. And that is the story I have for you today. All right. Okay, I'm going to set the scene for you a little bit first, all right? Okay. So take yourself back. It's 1914, early January. Woodrow Wilson is president. Is the country at war yet? Good question. That is still a few months off. You're having breakfast. You've got a cup of coffee. you got the New York Times open. You're flipping through the paper, looking at the headlines. Typhus fever cases report on Ellis Island, for instance. Uh, colored wigs are coming into fashion in Paris. Ooh, la, la. <laughs> yeah, and like all the ads are for like gin and almanacs or whatever. Right. The usual 1914 stuff. Yeah, so pretty standard. But then your eye catches on this short article in the obituary section. I actually have that here. Here? Okay. William G. Irwin dead. Sugar planter and refinery in Hawaii left 15 million San Francisco. That's 15 million dollars. Left 15 million dollars. San Francisco, January 28th. William G. Irwin, the wealthiest sugar planter and refiner in Hawaii, died in his home here today at the age of 76. You can actually just skip down a little bit. Uh, Mr. Irwin owned the entire island of Lanai of the Hawaiian group. He bought it five years ago from Charles Gay for a, for a dollar. Wait. He bought the whole island for a dollar? When I first read this article, I was like, how was this allowed to happen? And this story ran in newspapers across the country, like the Omaha Daily News, the Montgomery Advertiser, the Tulsa Daily World, the Spokesman Review. I found at least 30 different papers with this same article. All these cities across the country were reading this story about Lanai. And I was like, can this be true? Did this guy, William Irwin, really buy the whole of Lanai for $1? That's what I got to find out. This makes me think like either Lanai had very little value at the time or, I don't know, was a dollar just worth way more back then? I actually looked into this a little bit more because when I first read that, I was like, oh, God, maybe I just really don't understand how inflation works. (laughs) (laughs) And a dollar was worth a lot more back then. 
But I checked it out. At that time, a dollar would have bought you about two dozen eggs. Yeah. So the idea that you could buy an island with a dollar is just about as crazy then as it would be now. I mean, buy a whole island, there has to be like a paper trail. You're talking about like a receipt? (laughs) Yeah. Did you check the receipts? (laughs) Oh, you're just suggesting that I crawl around to different government offices and ask if they happen to have a hundred-year-old receipt for the sale of Lenae? Yeah, why not? Hello, survey office. This is Meyer. Hi, this is Savannah speaking. Can you hear me okay? I can. Hey, Savannah. How's it going? Fantastic. Give me just one moment. I'm going to close the door here so I'm not bothering anybody. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for being um, so prompt in your responses to my, frankly, rather strange uh, <sighs> questions. <laughs> I, I've, I've had uh, stranger um, requests, so don't worry about it. <laughs> it's okay. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> that is the very, very nice Meyer Cummins with the State Land Survey Division. So the majority of what he does is to help the public find state records about boundaries or land titles. And he says that, yes, for a sale of this kind, there should be some kind of receipt. I knew it. I emailed Meyer about the sale, and I included a copy of the article that we read. Had he heard about it before? No, but he had a pretty compelling theory about what might be going on. So that receipt, right, it's called a conveyance document. And for the conveyance document to be legal, you have to have three things, okay? So let's say you want to convey a piece of land to me. You are the grantor. Mm-hmm. I'm the grantee. Mm-hmm. What do you want to give me? Um, you can have 738 Kaheka Street, home of Hawaii Public Radio, in case anyone wanted to send fan mail. <laughs> okay, so the offer is the first thing, right? Then there's the acceptance. I have to say yes. I accept your offer. I want Kaheka Street, right? Makes sense got to have an offer, you got to have an acceptance, and you have to have consideration. And consideration is the evidence that there was a bargain and each party exchanged something. So consideration, that's the last piece of the puzzle. I have to give you something in return, usually money, but that something doesn't have to be the actual sale price of the land. It can basically be whatever I want it to be. It's just a placeholder. Generally speaking, if you pick up a conveyance document, it's usually just say, the land was sold for a dollar or ten dollars or again love or aloha or whatever um, just to seal that legal bargain there's some information you don't want publicly available right so in exchange you write in a dollar a nominal amount so when you, when i see this uh, article talking about paying only a dollar it makes me wonder if a reporter saw um, presumption of consideration at a dollar and mistook it for the actual cost of the land. Um, I don't, I mean, for all I know, it only cost, they actually only exchange it for a dollar. I don't know. If I wanted to see this conveyance document, is there somewhere where it might be public record? Yeah, it should be recorded at the Bureau of Conveyances, uh, 1151 Punchbowl Street, first floor. Hi, Meyer, this is Savannah. It's going good. I think I'm in the right place. I'm at the front door of the Kalanimoku building. Russell, have you ever been to the Kalanimoku building off Punchbowl? Maybe once. Big concrete building across from the state capitol. I went there to meet Meyer and actually see this conveyance document up close to see if it offered any answers. Weird thing about this building, you can't just like walk through the front door, they actually keep it locked. So I called Meyer when I got there because I couldn't figure out how to get in. Okay, let me say that back to you. Downstairs, parking garage, and then there, 
is a door on the diamond head side, you said? Really feel like I'm breaking in. So the Bureau of Conveyances literally has thousands and thousands and thousands of land records in its archives, and I had no idea where to start on my own. Thankfully, Meyer agreed to be my guide. Um, so we used to pull out all the microfilm and look at it on microfilm, um, which is fine, but then you have to get up and get a new one and put it back, and blah, 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 blah. so they've, they've scanned it all and it's in one system. So we want to go to index books, and then here, what are we looking for? Gay? Yeah. As a grantee? Yes. Okay. It's in the county of Maui. We'll try county first. And then we're talking 1906 specifically? Yeah, let's try that. Okay. All right. So here's the book. Let's zoom in. And there it was. The conveyance document for Lanai from Charles Day to William Irwin, filed September 9th. 1909. Was it conveyed for a dollar? It was. And not only did Charles Day sign over all of his Lanai lands to Irwin, he also threw in all of his sheep, cows, and horses. Dude cleaned house. Okay, so that maybe explains the obituary, but that doesn't necessarily mean that a dollar was the actual price. No, it doesn't. And it also doesn't tell us why Charles Day sold the land to Irwin. It was honestly a little bit of a dead end. So I decided to go back further. In order for Charles Gay to sell an IE, he had to have gotten a hold of it in the first place somehow. And that story actually starts in 1848, with a decision and an action that would radically change the concept of land and ownership in the islands. The Great Mahele. That story, after the break. Need a break from your day? Whether you're in your car or still in bed, Manu Minute brings you rich sounds from Hawaii's native forests and shorelines. Each week, we feature a different Hawaii bird and its unique song, in collaboration with the University of Hawaii Hilo, hosted by Patrick Hart. Nature's mixtape made just for you. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Russell. Savannah. What do you know about the Great Mahele? Well, the, the specifics are kind of fuzzy. I, really, all I remember is what I learned in my seventh grade Hawaiiana class. Mm, right. I know that it created a system of private property in the islands for the first time. And I think for me, I always understood the results of the Mahele to be that Hawaiians, Maka'ainana, were separated from land, and a lot of land went to foreigners. There's a couple of different narratives for the Mahele. I'm going to highly generalize them. Mahele good, Mahele bad. Who's this guy? That's Donovan Preza. He's an instructor over at Kapi'olani Community College, and he's done just like a ton of research on land sales in Hawaii in the 19th century. He has some theories about exactly what King Kamehameha was thinking when he created the Mahele. 
which is, you know, a very sticky, sticky subject. So his work has actually earned him kind of a reputation. This just happened to me the other day. I was at a jujitsu tournament and someone came up to me and said, hey, are you the Mahele guy? And my follow-up question is always, is that good or bad? Because it depends what story you've learned or grew up in. Okay, I'm interested. I'm skeptical, but I'm interested. Here's how Donovan sees it. At the time of the Mahele, Hawaii is an internationally recognized independent country. And so Kamehameha Third is in full control of this country, right? Hawaii's political history is different than that of other places, that of other quote-unquote indigenous peoples where they were not afforded that luxury of having their sovereignty recognized, so they therefore weren't in control of a lot of political decision-making. I don't know if I'd call it a luxury, but I get what he's saying. So when we say that Hawaii prior to the Mahele didn't have land ownership, that doesn't mean it didn't have a system of land stewardship. Right, right. This is something I, I know a little bit more about. You've got your Ahupua controlled by the chiefs, and the Maka'ainana live on the land and run the land. And I feel like the Ahupua is always described as pie slices, but they're not uniform. What's important is that it goes from the mountain to the sea so that every tract has access to a variety of resources, whether it be fresh water, timber, fertile ground for farming, and fish and other resources from the ocean. Right, yeah. And those Ahupua'a could be quite large, but they were subdivided into even smaller sections. Right. And Maka'ainana, regular folks, you and me, tended to those smaller parcels. But they don't own that land in a way that we would understand it as ownership today. Right. So Donovan says when King Kamehameha III takes the throne, he has the job of codifying Hawaiian custom into law and bringing it to this new international stage that Hawaii is now a part of. And he needs to ensure that Kanaka Maoli, all Hawaiian people, not just the li'i or chiefs, but also Maka'ainana, have land rights. First step was the Declaration of Rights in 1839, then came the Constitution. The 1839 Declaration of Rights declared people to have rights. And part of the, that declaration was people, the Maka'inanas, were acknowledged as having an ownership interest in land for the first time in Hawaiian history. Without the 1839 Declaration of Rights and the 1840 Constitution, there is nothing to mahele. So in Donovan's view, it's more accurate to look at the mahele as a division of the rights of land rather than a division of the land itself. Yeah, but it did result in actual land divisions, right? It did. So Hawaii is about 4 million acres in total, a little bit more. And one acre is a little smaller than a football field, right? So think of that in your head, how much space that takes up. And all said and done, we get three categories out of the mahele. Oh, I definitely learned this in school. There's crown lands. Yes. So those are the one million acres that Kamehameha III keeps for himself as the highest chief. That becomes his private property, and it passes down to his descendants. Though a law passes in 1865 that prevents the king, the Mo'i, from selling crown lands. And separate from that, Kamehameha III also oversees another 1.5 million acres of government lands as the head of state. Those are not his lands, though. 
No, those are public lands. All revenue from those lands goes towards the kingdom's coffers. So that's still, what, like one and a half million acres left over? Yes, the Konohiti lands. Those acres go to the high chiefs and officials, close to 250 individuals by Donovan's count. These lands are the base of today's large trusts, Kamehameha schools slash Bishop Estate, and that brings us up to about 4 million acres. That's everything? Close to everything. For those who were subsistence farming, they had uh, rights to their kuleana lands. In 1850, Maka'ainana finally did get title to some land in a move called the Kuleana Act. That gives between 28 and 29,000 acres to the Maka'ainana. How much is that total? Less than 1%. Yeesh. Yeah, barely a crumb in this big land pie that was being sliced and divvied up during the Mahele. So when people look at the Mahele from that perspective, it looks like a really bad deal. It's a very simple and direct story. And it matches to our reality today. Hawaiians don't have land in 2023. And if Hawaiians only got 28,000 acres of land in 1848, then those two things line up. We didn't get land from the beginning. We don't have land now. Connect the dots, makes sense. But that doesn't make up the entire picture. When Donovan was doing his master's thesis, a different picture started to come together. Donovan looked at every sale of government land between 1846 and 1893, the year of the overthrow. It's like 3,600 plus sales. And all of these sales are just on a massive spreadsheet on Donovan's computer. He can tell you how much public land was sold in Hamakua or Lihue or wherever, plus who bought it, and how much they paid for it. And he divided these sales into two groups. Basically, I looked at an award, and if his name was John Smith, I assumed he was non-Hawaiian. And if his name was Keola Kanakaole, I thought he was Hawaiian. And what Donovan found was that Kuleana lands were only one way that Maka'ainana got land. Between 1850 and 1893, 167,000 acres of land were sold to Hawaiians. Or at the very least, to people with Hawaiian names. 167,000, so that's... Are you you doing the math in your head? (laughs) Hold on, give me a minute. That's six times the amount of land that Maka'ainana got from the Kuleana Act. Yes, and that's all public land that Maka'ainana purchased directly from the government. According to Donovan, in the 1850s, 60s, and 70s, the majority of government land purchases were by Native Hawaiians. Hawaii, prior to 1848, was entirely public property belonging to the monarch. And so 1848 protected those lands that were made private. Wait, protected how? So Kamehameha III saw very well during his reign the influence of gunboat diplomacy. In 1839, there was a dispute with the Catholics from France. A warship with a lot of guns from France showed up and threatened to attack over the treatment of Catholics in the islands. In 1843, you have a dispute with Britain and the Paulette Affair. Another warship with a lot of guns from England showed up and threatened to attack. 
Her captain actually staged an unauthorized takeover of the Hawaiian government, which was ended with the help of some even bigger warships from the United States. And so Tinka Kamehameha is in this really precarious position, trying to figure out how to respond. You got France knocking on your door. You got Britain knocking on your door. Yes, you can keep everything the same. And then when Britain comes, 4.2 million acres goes to the King of Britain, Queen of England. Or you can adapt and solve the problems that you have control over. And so the Third had always been subject to that larger, more global threat of imperialism. And that was one of his main motivations for creating private property was that he understood that private property would be respected in the event of colonial takeover, whereas public property would be confiscated and would become part of the conqueror's spoils, so to speak. That was one of one of his main motivations. The other would have been depopulation, but that's kind of a different kind of story. What's the depopulation story? Lots of people look at the Mahele as the thing that put a rift between Hawaiians and the land, but arguably the Mahele was a proposed solution to an already existing rift. What exactly is Donovan getting at here? So in 1778, when British Captain James Cook arrives in the islands, there are 300 to 400,000 Kanaka Maoli in Hawaii. Maybe a lot more, maybe a little less. The number is really disputed. But what we do know for sure is that over the next handful of decades, the native Hawaiian population just plummets, namely due to diseases introduced by foreigners like measles and tuberculosis. By 1850, the population is 80,000. 20% of the people are alive. One in five people are left. Countries like Japan are dealing with depopulation today, and they're predicting really serious labor shortfalls and damage to social security safety nets. And that's just a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the decline that Hawaii saw in the 19th century. You got 80,000 people in Hawaii. 80,000 people is the population of Kauai, and Molokai. Every single other island is vacant. With a labor-intensive land organization scheme, if you don't have the people to support the everyday functioning of the Ahupua system, something's got to give. And so arguably, the rift between people and land was one of the demographics, which already started from 1778 and the arrival of foreigners and introduction of disease. So let me see if I'm following what Donovan is saying. The Mahele didn't separate Hawaiians from land. That separation had already taken place due to colonization, disease, and violence. But the Mahele gave them the chance to own private property, to get something back and have it be protected. I think the main thing to keep in mind, in, in Donovan's view, is that with the Mahele, King Kamehameha was trying to protect the land interests of Native Hawaiians. The government was trying to protect land access for Maka'ainana. That all changed after the overthrow. Like, look, this conversation's 25 minutes in, and we're 
only now getting to the story. Hawaiian's got land. How'd we lose it? That's the story. That story, coming up. Hey, if this show resonates with you, we have an opportunity for you to be part of one of our episodes. We'll be hosting a live recording of our season finale on Saturday, August 12th at Hawaii Public Radio's Atherton Studio in Honolulu. We'll have guests in the studio, including a representative from Kamehameha Schools, to talk about the future of land management in Hawaii. And they'll be taking your questions. You can join us in person or via Zoom. Admission is free, but spots are limited. We'll have food and drinks and all that good stuff, so come hungry and bring your burning questions. You can meet me and all the other cool folks who worked on the show, and we'll even have exclusive This Is Our Hawaii merch available for those who attend. So save your spot. You can find more info on how to attend at hawaiipublicradio.org slash ourhawaii. See you then. I'm Russell Subiono, here with my producer, Savannah Harriman-Pote, neck deep in 19th century land talks. Where were we? Yes. Okay. Quick recap. You got the Mahele in 1848, which, for better or worse, restructured the way land ownership worked in Hawaii. This scholar, Donovan Preza, has done just a ton of research on who owned land in the kingdom in the 19th century. I think the Mahele was both a blessing and a curse. For the first time, Maka'ainana were acknowledged as having rights in land. That idea starts with the 1839 Bill of Rights. And Maka'ainana did get land, not just through the Kuleana Act, but through direct land purchases from the government. But they weren't the only ones. Foreigners were getting land too, buying it, leasing it, trading it. There were people from Scotland and Germany and England and France, a ton of different places. But by the late 19th century, you've got a stronghold of American interests in Hawaii. And there are a couple different factions here. Uber wealthy businessmen in the sugar industry, people like Samuel Castle of Castle and Cook. This is the big five, the sugar companies that dominated politics in Hawaii. This is the precursor to the big five. Still a little early, but that's on the horizon. And then you've got people like Sanford Dole. Sanford Dole was a Jeffersonian. He was a yeoman farmer. He was a, you build a country on the backs of small farmers. White American farmers, ideally. He's trying to encourage yeoman farmers from America to come to Hawaii. And the incentive is land. We have land here, very cheap, beautiful climate. Make yourself a life here. At this point, 1880s, 1890s, Americans are outnumbered in the islands, particularly as more and more people immigrate from Asia, often to work on the plantations. So Sanford Dole's not seeing eye to eye with with Big Sugar. Yeah, they butt heads, and more on that in a bit. Finally, there's the U.S. military, who have been angling to get land for military bases. Ah, yes, the U.S. military. So three different interest groups, and at the end of the day, they all want the same thing, access to land. The businessmen want to keep control of their vast and lucrative plantations. The Jeffersonians, like Dole, want to pack the islands full of expats. And the U.S. military would like more places to park their warships. 
Meanwhile, land sales to foreigners are increasingly politically unpopular among Native Hawaiians. Can't imagine why. And the other thing is that this is four decades after the Mahele. Four decades of private property wheeling and dealing have gone by. And there just isn't as much land left to sell. By the early 1890s, the royal family had sold over 650,000 acres of the government's lands. And so that was all the good stuff that's on the coast and has infrastructure and isn't in the middle of Hawaii Island, where people today don't live for the most part. So the question becomes, what's left? And there are three major land divisions that came out of the Mahele, right? Do you remember which of the three couldn't be sold? Crown lands. In 1865, a law passed making the crown lands inalienable. You have vacant virgin agua. Nobody's on them. They're empty. The Jeffersonians are looking over at the guys in the sugar industry. Sugar industry guys are shrugging over at the guys in the military. And the military guys are pointing back at the Jeffersonians and they're all thinking, well, if it's just sitting there. People are coveting the crown lands and that's the beginning of the need for the overthrow. Before we get ahead of ourselves, I want to say that there's enough happening politically in Hawaii at this time to fill like 20 HBO specials. This by no means is the only reason for the overthrow. But control of land was a huge, huge factor. And after 1893, after the overthrow, that whole power dynamic around land and government shifts. Post-overthrow, Hawaii is managed by the large landholders. People with land manage Hawaii, govern Hawaii. The territorial government has control of the whole game board, government and crown lands alike. The U.S. wants a new military base? Fine. Where's our, all our military bases today? Crown lands. Kahawiki, Fort Shafter, crown lands. Bellows, crown lands. Wainaiuka, Schofield Barracks, crown lands. A plantation owner wants water rights? Sure. A cattle rancher wants to own an entire island? Ooh, Lanai. Lanai. Okay, we've made it to the grand finale of our story. Bring your calendar up to 1905. This guy, Charles Day. That's the dude from the article who sold Lanai to William Irwin. Yes, exactly. Charles Day was born in 1862 in New Zealand. He came to Hawaii when he was quite young. He's lived there ever since. After the Maunalei Sugar Company on Lanai went bankrupt, he bought its lands at auction with plans to start a cattle ranch. This part is important. Gay owns roughly half of the lands of Lanai outright, but he's also leasing the other half, some 48,000 acres, give or take, directly from the government. So he effectively controls the whole island. Sort of, kind of. Since the terms of his lease will ultimately expire, it's hard for him to get financial backing to build out any needed infrastructure for his ranch on the leased government lands. That half of the island is also where one of Lena'i's most important water sources is, the Mauna Lea Valley. There are others, but in general, the island is just really, really dry. Is the island truly split in half? Like, like one half is privately owned and the other half is government lands? No, it's all over the place, which isn't ideal for Charles Day either. So he goes to the governor of the territory of Hawaii, George Carter, and says, look, I'd really, 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 really like to own the rest of the Lanai lands. And Governor Carter goes, eh, deal. Wait, the governor just sells him the land? 
So technically, selling that amount of land would have been illegal. The Organic Act set limitations on selling more than a thousand acres of Hawaii's land to any one entity at any one time. Dole and his posse don't want all the good ag land going to the plantations and the ranchers. But we know there were all kinds of ways that large landowners were getting around this law, and one of those ways was land exchanges, which are exactly what they sound like. Right. You give me a piece of land, I give you a piece of land. Exactly. Land exchanges started after the Mahele, and they're still used today to facilitate public works projects like roads or schools. So if you want to build a road through my private property, you offer to swap the land I own for some other piece of land. Right, which was an especially helpful way of doing business when the kingdom was land-rich and cash-poor. But the practice of land exchanges were generally pretty infrequent. And then, in the first decade of the 20th century under the territorial government, you saw this huge spike. The government is signing off on land exchanges left and right, and it's not always the government approaching private landowners. Sometimes it's the other way around. Like in the case of Charles Gay. Yes. So Charles Day makes an offer. Any guesses as to what he offered to exchange for nearly 50,000 acres on Lenai? <sighs> My gut tells me it's not going to be worth it. 300 acres on Oahu. Wait, only 300 acres in exchange for 50,000? Yeah, Charles Day throws down a little less than 300 acres on Oahu's Tantalus and two small pieces of land in the city where the Hawaii State Library and the Honolulu Museum of Art School now sit. And the governor accepts. Okay, okay. Pause, 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 pause. First of all, where is this happening? And do other people know about it? So this is late November 1906. Gay and Carter have this handshake deal. And before they can make it official, the commission posts a notice to make the public aware of their intent with a two-week deadline for any other bidders who might want to get in on the action. And people see this notice, particularly those in the Jeffersonian camp, and say, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's not going to fly with us. Enter Lincoln McCandless. Goes by Link. Well, that's a great name. That's like a movie star name. Yes, Lincoln McCandless is a local lawmaker, early member of the Hawaii Democratic Party. He's the one that leads the charge against the Lanai Exchange. First, he files an injunction with the local courts to stop the exchange on the basis that it violates the essence of the Organic Act. When the injunction is reversed by the Hawaii Supreme Court, Link appeals to the U.S. Supreme Court. He makes enough of a stink that the territorial legislature launches an official investigation into the matter in 1907, and the newspaper coverage is spicy. People are accusing Pratt and Carter of backdoor deals, which they deny. When he's testifying in front of the legislature, Lincoln McCandless compares letting Charles Day have Lenai to letting a Rockefeller buy Oahu. The president gets involved. Teddy Roosevelt himself weighs in on the side of Governor Carter. He says, and I quote, I do not care a rap about what the politicians say about you, still less what they say about your course. You are doing all right, and you can be sure of my unqualified support. That's a great Teddy Roosevelt impersonation. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I was really working up to it. So the government is trying to push through this exchange and Lincoln McCandless says it's illegal, and the government's response is, eh, screw off, we can do whatever we want. The question of what the government can and cannot do with public lands, which are held in trust 
for the benefit of the people of Hawaii is a big one. But there's also this whole dialogue that comes up about land stewardship. Land stewardship. Lanai at this time is in rough shape. A lot of the island has been deforested, and with it being so dry, it has a serious problem with erosion. People are saying the island might simply blow away if the landscape isn't better maintained. And some people support the Lanai Exchange because they think that it's the best way to literally save the island. Save the island by giving it away? Don't just give it away, but give it away to someone with money. Because they'll do the best job of maintaining the landscape. Here's more of Teddy Roosevelt's letter to Governor Carter in support of the exchange. As regards to the small islands, we must try to put them under private ownership and under private ownership of some man rich enough to take measures that will prevent their being rendered absolutely uninhabitable by deforestation and the drying up of water. So we're back to stewardship versus ownership. And what we see here is an assumption that you can't have one without the other. That idea of putting Lanai in the hands of one person in order to save it assumes that a person is only going to care for something if they own it. That feels like a fundamentally different mindset than the approach to land before the Mahele. The government is outsourcing its responsibility to hold these lands for public trust. And these guys who are pushing for the exchange... They don't sound like they want to steward Lanai for the benefit of the land or the benefit of the people on the land. Charles Gay wants to run a cattle ranch. The guy's not out there to plant trees. It sounds like Lanai is only worth being saved if it can be made profitable. On that, I think it's also worth noting that the folks who were opposed to the Lanai exchange didn't necessarily think that the territorial government was the best entity to steward the land either. They just rather see the island cut up into house lots and sold to American homesteaders who want to live out the Hawaii version of the American dream. And who knows what Lanai would have looked like if that vision prevailed? Who knows what it would have looked like if the government had kept the land in the first place? But neither of those things happen. The Supreme Court decides in favor of Carter and Pratt as well, arguing that since McCandless couldn't demonstrate any legal injury that the exchange would do to him personally, he had no grounding to bring the case to court. The 1907 legislative investigation doesn't find any wrongdoing either, and the Lanai exchange goes through. And Charles Day enjoys a very short victory lap before falling into financial ruin. In fact, Charles Day really only controls all of Lanai for less than a single day. It turns out that William Irwin had been pulling the strings the whole time. Wait, what? Okay, let's back up for a moment on our friend William G. Irwin. He's one of the largest players in the sugar business. At one point, his company controlled nearly a third of the sugar trade. So he's got capital, he's good at getting things done, and he's been interested in Lanai for a while. So he wants to make his move. But remember, the Organic Act prevents people from buying more than a thousand acres at a time. And this law is specifically meant to curb the power of plantations and corporations looking to snatch up large tracts of land. Right. Which is why Charles Gay had to set up an exchange rather than buy the lands outright. Correct. But Irwin's still not sure that the exchange loophole will be enough on its own. If he approaches the government asking for an exchange himself, it might look a little too much like he's a sugar guy trying to bend the rules. Which is exactly what's happening. Which is exactly what's happening. So he gets Charles Gay to be his front man. All the while, it was kind of just like an open secret that Irwin was behind the whole operation. There's a Hawaii State legislative report that talks about the Lenai Exchange, and it treats this relationship between Irwin and Gay just so matter-of-factly. 
Here's part of the report. Quote, although title to the government land on the Nai was transferred to an apparently independent rancher, Charles Gay, it was understood by Governor Carter and the other principals to the transaction that Gay was absolutely dependent in this transaction on funds made available by William Irwin. And yet this, the same day, the same day that the exchange goes through, Gay turns around and mortgages the Lanai'i lands back to Irwin for close to $200,000. So the real price tag that Irwin paid for Lanai'i, 200000 Yeah, which is about $6.5 in today's dollars. He may have coughed up a bit more to back Charles Day's ranching operation before it went fully underwater. So that $1 conveyance a few years later, what's that? That's Charles Gay defaulting on the terms of the mortgage he set up with Irwin and turning the island over to Irwin officially. The island changes hands a couple more times before James Dole acquires it in 1922. And, I mean, that's it. That's how Lanai became privately owned and remains privately owned to this day. I talked to Donovan about this history, too. It also brings up the issue of the crown lands. Right? Like Lanai doesn't happen without the overthrow because you can't consolidate Lanai. You can only consolidate Lanai if you can purchase both crown and government. So he's saying that under the kingdom's leadership, this wouldn't have happened. I mean, we really can't know for sure. It's not without precedent that an entire island gets sold. The 60,000-acre purchase of Ni'ihau happens under the Hawaiian Kingdom's watch. But Donovan's main point about the Lanai exchange is that it isn't about what the government does or doesn't do. It's about the people and how we serve the land. He ali'i ka'aina, he kaua ke kanaka. Land is the chief, people are the servants. In a lot of ways, if the people of Hawaii keep moving from Hawaii to the mainland and to continental United States and to Vegas and to Washington and Oregon and Texas, then I think you have Lanai, where people from the outside are going to be able to do things with and to Hawaii because there aren't people here to say no. I feel like the stories we've been telling about Lanai for the last hundred years, really, aren't really about the island at all. The community on the island, I mean. They're just about who owns the island and how it factors into their fortunes. Lanai feels like a poker chip, not a real place. What's it like to live there? What does it mean to be from there? Hmm. Maybe you should go find out. Maybe I will. Maybe you will. Maybe you will in episode three. Anybody thought about that? <laughs> Next week, we'll see what it means to call Lanai home and whether or not its residents can continue to afford to live there. Oko mako Hawaii keia. This is our Hawaii. I'm Russell Subiono. Mahalo to everyone who talked story with us and everyone tuning in. This episode was written and produced by me, my producer, Savannah Harriman-Pote. Our boy, Casey Harlow, helped to create the show. 
This Is Our Hawaii is produced with support from PRX and is made possible in part by a grant from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. Original music courtesy of Lelehua Lanzalotti and additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Kristen Littman designed our bomb logo. Cheers to Taylor Kozloff for sifting through more than 100 years of history to fact check this episode. Anadev Banerjee always hits just the right note. Good chance you found out about our show in the first place. Thanks to our digital dream team, Sophia McCullough, Sylvia Flores, Liberty Peralta, Krista Rados, and Emily Tom. Jason Ubai is the man with the plan, and most importantly, the snacks. Bill Dorman always lets us keep at least 50% of our jokes in the final draft. Jose Fajardo is the man who greenlit this project in the first place. And big thanks to my wife, Stacy, who let me go to Lanai by myself. I promise it's me and you on the next trip.